0: I remember when I was young, um, before a practice, stretching and warming up, and thinking, what an utter waste of time. The reason why these coaches are making us warm up is because they're so old, they're like in their 30s, and um, they're all hobbled up and they need to warm up, but I don't need to warm up. And so now, uh, Bruce, warming up, by the time I'm warmed up, I'm exhausted, I mean, so (laughs) that's how things change, but... We do need to warm up not just for exercise but for just all different areas of our lives. I was talking to a friend who's going to give a speech in front of a large group of people and she's preparing her words, her speech, but she's also preparing her heart. And those are two different things, but they come together. And whether we're going, driving down the road, getting ready for work in your mind, you're kind of preparing yourself for, maybe subconsciously preparing yourself for work and because we're physical spiritual hybrids we have to prepare for worship if we're going to do it well if we're going to encounter God God's always ready he's always warmed up ready to go but we need to get ourselves in a position a posture internally to experience him so that ties into the work we usually don't do announcements now but announcements are tied into really um this whole idea of preparation. So we're, we, we're moving next week, first service, back to 9.15, partly to give you uh, room to park. Sometimes nine, sometimes that service is staying around longer and longer because we have space and they enjoy doing it. So give you time to park and get in here. We're also going to stop doing the, some of the drinks a little bit before the service starts, and then they'll crank back up. Um, when you, before you guys can get here. And that's also so that you can get in here in time to prepare. Because we, the, the first two songs, I kind of begin to think of them, they're, they're sort of like throwaway songs. They're really just songs, worship team, good job, let everybody get in their seats. But that's not really what they are. They're traditionally called a call to worship, where we're, we're telling ourselves, like the psalmist over and over is telling his soul, soul, wake up worship God and so I just want to cast a vision for all of us that is as best we can that we get in a posture to hear from God it's just so important let me pray and we're going to move on actually I'm going to let you pray so let me give you a couple of thoughts perhaps perhaps you are feeling guilty or maybe even sort of a little bit in hiding from God right now. Maybe there's some sin in your life. and I would encourage you just to name that sin. I've done a fair amount of that this week in preparation for today. God, this attitude, this word, this action was sin. Forgive me. And he will. Maybe you're struggling with doubts or confusion or anger. He can handle it. I would encourage you just to tell him, God, I'm wrestling with believing that you're there, that you're good, that you're powerful. I'm wrestling with this. Just tell him that. Open yourself up to him. And sometimes it can be hard for me to tell the humans that I love that I love them. (laughs) I don't know why, it just can be. But it's exceptionally hard for me just to tell God I love you and not just say it um, sort of in a token way. But this week I've told God I loved him. And it doesn't matter if you feel it, but if you believe it, then say it to him. Just tell him I love you. I don't understand you necessarily, but I love you. Amen. Brave New World was written by Aldous Huxley in 1931 and it has consistently made the best books of the 20th century list. I have to admit I don't get it but interesting side note Huxley died on the same day as C.S. Lewis whose books in my opinion were way better but I do think his dystopian novel has proven to be prophetic in some ways and he wrote it to counter the utopian novels that were, being, that were popular at the time, dystopia is a combination of the Greek prefix for bad and the Greek word for place, so uh, the future is a bad place. And the future in most current movies is not a good place. Most of the things that you see now are dystopian. They're not utopian, which is a prefix for good, good place. But in Huxley's day after the war to end all war and before World War II, the future was thought to be bright And it was believed sort of universally among the the academia and the elite that science and human goodness would usher in a perfect world. But in his book, Brave New World, Huxley starts, he predicts that the the human demand for happiness in a world without pain would usher in a world of dysfunction, a dystopia. And a character in the book named John, also called the Savage, he rejects the social conditioning and the the drug-induced happiness of that utopia, dystopia, and he says, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. Huxley was a bright but a confused man. He blended science and philosophy, Buddhism, and psychedelic drug use into his worldview. But in his character's claim to the right to be unhappy, he was touching on the Christian worldview. Now, he was just touching it. He wasn't grasping it. And a prevailing characteristic of our society is a demand to be happy and a rejection as abnormal and unacceptable of anything or anyone that makes me feel unhappy. And the result is that fewer and fewer people are happy, as measured by numerous polls, the news, the increasing drug use, illegal and legal, and just by generally paying attention. Now, how is the right to be unhappy touching on the Christian worldview? It's not so much a right as a reality in a fallen world. And I know that the pursuit of happiness is a part of the American experience, but historically they didn't have the idea of temporal happiness at all costs in mind. Otherwise, so many early Americans would not have endured hardships to forge a better future for future generations. There is a sort of sanctified happiness that's synonymous in scripture with bless, like in the Beatitudes. And Some people are happy when they serve and sacrifice for those they love. That kind of happiness, though, is more the the byproduct of the pursuit of faithfulness. I'm talking about the persistent aversion to and avoidance of unhappiness at any cost, especially the cost of faithfulness to God. I want to feel good, to feel happy, or something must be done. This is unacceptable. And I'm not saying you shouldn't use medication or go to counseling or do whatever you can do to increase your sense of well-being as far as you can or should. But in this life, pain, pain, some unhappiness, maybe a lot of unhappiness, is normal. And the approach to life that puts feeling happy over being faithful is not going to turn out well. Happiness as a result of a faithful life is good. Happiness as a controlling life goal is always going to fail. Look at what Scripture says about some of this. Paul wrote, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed. And he's, in, that past, in that chapter, he's talking about... Um, Longing for the resurrection while confessing that in this life there's going to be pain. And he knew this as well as anyone. And Jesus said, in me you'll have peace, in the world you're going to have trouble. Philippians 1, 29, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not just to believe but to suffer as well. In the same letter he wrote, rejoice evermore. Those tensions were held together in Paul's life. Peter wrote, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as if something strange were happening to you. And the demand that God and others make us happy and the idea that I must reject unhappiness as un- abnormal and unacceptable have to be, I have to do away with that at all costs makes us foolish. And again, it's not to say we shouldn't try to be happy. Of course we should. It's about the quest for happiness at all costs, including the cost of faithfulness to Christ. And I have, uh, uh, seems to me like a large number of friends right now who are suffering with severe illnesses and what we would normally measure as happiness is sort of evaporated from their lives, but it's astounding the amount of peace and purpose and joy they maintain. The biblical worldview says there's joy and peace, a thriving life available in Christ, expressed in love for God and love for others. And we'll have times of happiness, maybe, but the promise of life in Christ is not less, but more than temporary happiness. And as we're being changed by Christ, we're experiencing a reversal of the brokenness in this world, but it's going to be a partial reversal now, a full reversal in the life to come. So meanwhile, Paul says, as he's looking forward to the resurrection, meanwhile we groan. In Huxley's book, Savage eventually takes his own life because he was only touching on a partial half-truth. He claimed his right to be unhappy and he refused to medicate himself into ignorant bliss But he failed to understand the birthright of a Christian, which is being changed over time and and into eternity in the image of Christ. Huxley dabbled in Buddhism, probably more than dabbled in Buddhism, where the approach to dealing with suffering is to eliminate desire. Essentially, if you don't care, you don't hurt. The Christian worldview deals with suffering by changing our desires. The desire becomes for the glory of God and the good of others. Even in unhappiness, there's meaning and hope and joy. And so when our society says, you must do you, whatever that means for you, no one can tell you otherwise, God included, your happiness is all that matters, then the Christian has to say, okay, then I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. And I say this tongue-in-cheek because I'm not claiming the right to be unhappy, what we're doing is declaring that we're going to be faithful to Christ, whatever that makes us. Think about what it would be if first century believers claimed the right to be happy as measured by the Roman Empire. The church would have died. Or think about the same with persecuted believers in Iran or Uyghurs in China or all over the world. So this is going to preclude me from taking a path just because it might make me feel happy. Because those who demand to be happy, they never are for long. Those who decide that I'm going to be happy, faithful i'm going to be holy experience god's life in increasing scale but it's not going to keep us from troubles and unhappiness it is going to lead us towards transformation and those those two patterns of life show up in every biography i've ever read and they're going to show up in every life that's ever been lived the pursuit of happiness at all costs ending up in emptiness or the pursuit of faithfulness in a stop and go fashion we're not perfect but the pursuit of faithfulness that brings transformation over time So keep all that in mind as we read James chapter 4 because people who are in desperate pursuit of happiness apart from faithfulness are not going to be happy with what James has to say. They're going to be offended, hurt, maybe rage against his words. Those who are trying to be faithful are going to see kindness in his words. So let me read it to you. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you devil-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. James, that's just not very nice. You're telling me that just because I'm doing what I want, that makes me an enemy of God. Well, I don't want that kind of God. I don't want a God who doesn't want me to be happy. And you really do want me to grieve and mourn and wail and give up laughter for gloom? And really, you want me to humble myself? I mean, I'm finally free to be myself. I'm free from all restraints. I'm finally happy, and I refuse to be otherwise. And James would say, you don't seem happy. And if you look back at what he said so far, as he's looking at this church, he said, you look like you're being dragged away by your own sin, and that sin's going to grow up into death. You look angry, and you look like you're not going to listen to the people around you, and you look enslaved by your own passions. You look selfish, and that's never made anybody happy. You look like you're judging one another, trying to fit into the current cool crowd. How's that working out? You can't even tame your own tongue. I mean, how free are you really? You don't look happy. You look like you're driven by envy and selfishness, and then it's ruining all your relationships around you. So if you've been there as we've here, as we've worked our way through James, you recognize all this. And what James is saying in this passage is here's a different path to take. So are these mean words or are these kind words? Well, they're kind words, but they're a hard, kind truth. Romans 2.4 says God's kindness leads us to repentance. But how we perceive James' word depends on the path we're walking. Proverbs, James, James is called the, the New Testament Proverbs. James describes two paths, only two paths, the path of wisdom, which is, which is again... Two steps forward, one step back sometimes, but it's moving increasingly towards God and then the path of folly, which is moving away from God. And in Proverbs, the path of folly looks more fun, but it ends up being really bad. And the path of wisdom doesn't look as fun, but it leads to increasing joy. So let's look again at James's word. They're they're some of the strongest words in the New Testament in terms of rebuke, but let's see them as the kindness that they are. They are a severe mercy. And these words are buried in the middle of James's letter, and they're really the heart of his letter. Over and over, James has written, my dear brothers and sisters. So we get dear brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, and then all of a sudden we get you adulterous people. It's kind of shocking. I mean, I, I thought I was your dear brother or sister. I mean, you call me that like nine times, and now all of a sudden it's you adulterous people. So we are still his dear brothers and sisters, but now he's our prophet, so he's put on a different hat. Our friend, still our friend, has turned prophet, telling us that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. And the world here is not the physical cosmos, the planet is not human beings, but the world in scripture, there's three different meanings, but here the world is, it's human desire set in opposition to God, his cultures. And groups of people moving in opposition to God he said you can't be friend of that and friend of God at the same time it's just not possible you can't go north and south at the same time and he's been setting us up for the entire letter he's saying look you can't have double minds you can't say I belong to God he's my boss and I'm my own boss he said, you can't say I have faith and it doesn't show up in your life and now he's just sort of going directly for clarity over all diplomacy you just got to pick you can't have it both ways. And he's talking to believers. Even our armed forces understand you can't have two commanders, so in a military unit there's always a commander, there's never a time when there's not one, and there's never a time when there's two. And if you go to a change of command ceremony, you can see that person stepped step aside, this person stepped up. So they know you, it doesn't work. People can't have two final commands. And when it says God is jealous for us, his spirit envies intensely in us, he's using human terms and emotion to describe this is how God is rightly jealous for our full affection because he's God. But in the midst of what feels like just an epic beatdown, look at verse 6. But he gives us more grace. So this is not a beatdown. This is a warning like a sign on the road that says, bridge out. You're driving down the road, listen to your favorite podcast, sipping your latte, and you go, bridge out? It's so inconvenient. I was enjoying this trip. Forget it. And you just motor on. The bridge out is a kindness. That sign is a kindness. Don't go that path. It's just not going to work out well for you. So God's offering grace, power to walk the good path, but we must, we must, we must humble ourselves, submit to him, because we're just not going to outsmart him. You can't do things your own way and expect God to support you in your own destruction. And there's grace available, God's unmerited favor, God's operational power to change, but it's only for the humble. Who else could it be for? I mean, why would God empower us to walk away from him? So you have a child who's determined to do things that are unsafe, and that child is angry when the parent refuses to go along with it. But if the parent complies with the foolish child, then the parent is also a fool, but God is no fool. So of course he opposes the proud. Of course he gives grace to the humble. Now go back to our list of commands and, they, and that helps us understand what does this grace gaining humility look like? It looks like submit to God and resist the devil and he'll flee. Submit just means to place ourselves under God's lordship. You're the boss. I acknowledge that. At the same time rejecting the devil's authority in our lives. And when we do, he loses the command and control over us. Come near to God, he'll come near to you. This is a continual turning to God. I keep turning back to God because I keep turning away. And we turn back to God, then he continues to come near to us. He's talking to believers. It's not about a break in relationship. He's talking about a break in fellowship. When I turn away from him, I turn back. And he keeps taking me back over and over. The father of the prodigal son didn't chase the prodigal son into the pig pen but he was there ready to take him back when his son came back. Wash your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So here James addresses a person who tries to live the perpetually deciding life, the double-minded person. Am I in? Am I not in? Am I in? Am I not in? Imagine a marriage ceremony where the pastor says, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have in the hope? And he goes, well, you know, let me think about that. It sort of depends, doesn't it? So it sort depends on how things go. That would be a bad thing to do in a wedding. And the idea here is this person who's, who's literally double-souled. They're, they have a split heart. They're still living that perpetually deciding life. They want to be friends with the world and God at the same time, which is impossible. So they have to wash their hands, which was just a, a symbolic way of saying, turn from the external sinful behavior A lot of it he's described in a letter to this point. At the same time, purify your hearts, which is deal with the source of that behavior, a heart that wants what God wants. And then grieve, mourn, and wail. What parent, what good parent can't say I want my kids to be happy? I struggled when my kids were unhappy. It hurt my heart a lot. So whenever I could, sometimes probably more than I should, I would try to fix the cause of their unhappiness. Sometimes I couldn't fix it. It was either I just couldn't, or I realized it's necessary, this unhappiness is necessary for them to become healthy adults. And I struggle with this still. I still want to take all unhappiness from my grown kid's life, and now I want to take all unhappiness from my grandkid's life, but I can't. Some, some, sometimes it's just because I just can't, and sometimes it's because I shouldn't. I do want to be a source of happiness for them. That choice is mine to make, but I can't remove all sources of unhappiness. So grieve and mourn and wail, that's Old Testament language for sorrow over sin. And we can't avoid this kind of unhappiness. It's the path of joy. doesn't sound like it. It doesn't sound like very joyful language. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance, it leads to salvation, and leaves no regret. So God in his love wants us to grieve and mourn when we need to. And if we've walked away from God, then grief and mourning, even tears, are appropriate. Grief, mourning, even shame are not our enemies. Sin is our enemy. And when we sin, we have reason to feel shame and guilt. The problem is that when we stay in shame and guilt, when we don't need to. And the solution for shame and guilt is not to deny they exist, which is a common strategy the solution is to be free of them. And repentance is turning away from shameful things that make us guilty to forgiveness and freedom from both guilt and shame. On occasion, not very often, maybe like six times in 30 years, I've had someone attend a service in an email saying you may, I made them feel bad. And I'm not perfect in my words or my demeanor. And so there's times when I'm sure I played some role in how they felt, But other times, as I read their email and thought about my words, it was really a matter of them being unhappy with me saying that sin is sinful and sin is bad and that there are some things that we just must not do, say, think, or become because it's just wrong. And it wouldn't be kindness to tell a person who's suffering or going to suffer because of their choices that their choices are okay just because I don't want them to feel bad. And... We are certain, I say we as a church, we're certain that God has revealed truth to us about this is what the good path is. And we don't know everything, don't claim to know everything. The whole Advent series was from Deuteronomy 29:29. 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may obey them. History and mystery. There's things we know, things we don't know. But what God has made clear, then we're certain about it. And to act as if, We're not certain is neither honoring to God nor loving to others. I read this week where an author wrote that certainty in the church is a sign of spiritual abuse. My first thought was, are you certain? (laughs) My second thought was, everyone's certain about what they're certain about. The one who's hurt by Scripture's rebuke of their sin and the certainty by which the church believes Scripture is true is driven by their own sense of certainty about what they're doing and believing. Everyone's certain about what they're certain about. You can't get around this. Even if you're certain that you can't be certain, it's just unavoidable. So we believe God's revealed himself to us and we can know how to live a faithful life. It doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly or that we know everything. That's a false dichotomy. This means that when we choose to not live that kind of life, the kind of life that God's revealed to us, then we're in sin and we need to turn around, and the good news is we can. Some of the very best and some of the very worst times of my life, sounds like the beginning of a book, doesn't it, have been the times when I have grieved and mourned and and wailed over my sin. I can think back on just a few times, and the mountain peaks in my life, now in retrospect, have also been valleys in a sense, because powerful and important, difficult, transformational times that were terrible and wonderful. And there were times when in God's severe mercy he helped me weep and mourn and wail and then it led to profound change in my life. See how this is a mercy. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. This is not a call for Christians to stop being fun. It's not, it, it, by all means, please don't act and be miserable. If anything, we should outlaugh the world around us, but not in mocking and cynical and unhealthy ways but we should sort of set the pace in terms of fun. An expert in resiliency wrote that one of the most important resiliency factors is a sense of humor. People who have gone through trauma, maintain a sense of humor, do better. So the idea here is not a lighthearted person or a resilient person who's maintained the ability to laugh. This is a person who makes light of folly. This is a person who does not understand the the consequences of sin. They're finding joy in empty things, laughing in the face of God, laughing in the face of their own sin. In college, I had a, a friend who had come back from summer break, and we were all gathered around, just probably 20 or 30 of us, and he started bragging about having gotten a girl pregnant over the summer, and he was laughing about it. And I said, you shouldn't be laughing. You should be ashamed of yourself. Got really quiet. Later that semester, he came to Christ and he felt ashamed of his former approach to women and to God and to life. And in his shame, that laughter turned to mourning, but it was a good thing. He eventually left shame for forgiveness. By the way, he didn't, he didn't become this unhappy person. He's still was one of the most fun and funny guys I knew, but now he was a changed funny guy. That's the idea here. It's not become miserable and, and grumpy. It's... It's laughing at things that are just not funny. And then humble yourself before the Lord, and he'll lift you up. And he finishes off this section with a command that corresponds to the truth he wrote earlier God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So don't be foolish. Humble yourself before the Lord. And there's just no better picture of this verse than the one Jesus painted with this story in Luke. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, he told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a tax collector, the most hated people among the Jews. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even that tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. Why? Because he was full of shame. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that man, not the other, went home justified before God. And here's where James is quoting his brother. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So the humble went home lifted up by God. Which means what? He was forgiven. He was freed from the cause, the the basis for guilt and shame. So I think... James is doing mercy, is showing us mercy here by saying grieve, mourn, and wail. Because grief over sins is, means that we're starting to understand that our sin's a terrible thing. Uh, earlier in the book, he said that, that temptation, when it comes full-grown sin, full-grown, leads to death. And so he's a pastor here, and he's saying, look, if we understand and mourn our sin, then maybe temptation will start losing some of its power. That's really good for us. Because if we we play it forward, when a temptation comes, when we we really are strongly being tempted, we stop short of the full picture. But if we play it forward and go, oh, man, that's, that's never turned out good, this temptation stops looking as good. So God's purpose in rebuke is to turn us back to himself. His purpose is love. Humble yourself before the Lord. He'll lift you up. He will forgive you. God's kindness leads us to repentance. So let's pray together. Let's let's give thanks to the Lord for his kindness. We're going to worship him some more, but I'm going to give you a chance to talk to God. If you've never committed your life to Christ or if you're still unsure about where you stand with him, the starting point would be to believe the gospel to confess to God that you believe Christ died for your sins on the cross and that God raised him from the dead and then transfer trust from yourself to him. That'd be the first step. You can talk to God, pray that to him even now. If you've wandered from God in some way, if you're feeling guilt and shame, then please leave that here. He does not intend for you to carry that. You don't have to, but you're not going to be able to leave it here if you don't admit It is what it is, so give it to him, lay it at his feet, and then walk from this room free.